As we continue our Lenten journey of journeying with Jesus through different episodes of his ministry, people he interacted with, things that he did, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to be reading John chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 26, and encourage you um, as we consider different practices that are within the Lenten devotional, and there's still extras on the, on the back tables, but hopefully you have it with you. We'll continue to use the prayer for illumination from the devotional, and it'll also appear on the screen. Um, but one of the practices that we encourage you to just try um, and see if it brings you closer in your journey with Jesus is to draw or write. And this has been the Thursday practice throughout. And we simply invite you, whether during the hearing of the word or during the sermon, to take a moment to either draw a picture of something or write out what is it, what's the word or phrase that you keep hearing um, that stands out to you, that there's something alive in you around it. Take a moment to write that word or phrase. You can do this throughout. So that doesn't dictate that you have to take really detailed notes, but it is a practice of drawing your attention towards something, to draw a picture of what it is that draws you. I still draw at a second grade level, um, but that doesn't mean that the practice of drawing doesn't have meaning for me. Uh, simply to draw a bowl with water in it um, is perhaps something that captures me from this text. So I encourage you to draw or write what it is that stirs within you. Where does God speak to you? Where is your attention drawn as both you hear the word and as the sermon is preached? So as we enter the scripture this morning, I invite you, if you have your devotional with you, to open it, um, or the words of the prayer for illumination will appear on the screen. Let's read this together. Almighty Almighty God, God, you have made our hearts restless until they rest in you, our souls thirsty until they drink of you, our minds darkened until they see your light. Illumine us now by your word. Cause us to drink deeply of your spirit that we may find in you our life, our joy, and our peace. Amen. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Even universal truths need to be understood in a particular setting. They need particular time, context, location, and particular people with which these truths are revealed. If we are to be worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth, as Jesus says, this is the type of people, the type of worshipers that the Father is seeking, we need to be able to read Scripture in spirit and in truth, both for that which is universal, but how does it come to us in the particular? How is the Spirit at work In John chapter 4, what truth is revealed to us in this text? To set the scene a little bit of the details that we're given, this is an interaction between a Jew and a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans do not get along. They have hatred and prejudice of one another that is centuries old, dating all the way back to the exile and the return to the promised land. Centuries-old hatred and prejudice is between the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet we're told in verse 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And so maybe we wonder, is this for, for geographic reasons? Is it simply that he has to travel through this particular area that he doesn't like? Or is it for a divine intention that Jesus has to go through Samaria so that he will run into this woman at the well of Jacob as is ordained. It's safe to say yes to both questions. There is divine intent in both who Jesus meets and where. And geographically, if we want to use an analogy from our own way, it'd be kind of like if we were going to go to Grand Rapids from here, we would probably go through Hudsonville. Hudsonville is like Samaria, I guess, geographically. Not that we want to read too much meaning into that. 
But all the same, there are some Jews going point A to point B who would choose to go around Samaria, take the long way around, and avoid even going through Samaria because those aren't our people. Those aren't people that we like. And yet we transition into Jesus' mindset that he has to go through Samaria because this divine appointment at the well of Jacob with this woman has to happen. The other thing I notice about this text is that John, John's gospel as a whole is very spiritual. John's gospel uses some of the most lofty spiritual metaphors that we have in Scripture. I am the vine, you are the branches. You must be born again, living water. These come out of the gospel of John. John is very spiritual in what it conveys. But it also holds in tension the truth that Jesus was 100% human. Jesus was fully divine and fully human. So even amidst all the spiritual things that Jesus says and the way that he teaches and the divine appointments that he keeps, we also get a picture of Jesus in John 4 where he is tired. Jesus is tired. Jesus is thirsty in the same way that we get thirsty. His feet are warm from a long walk. His nose is dusty from the trail. He sits down by the well because he needs to rest, just like we would need to rest. Takes off his sandals, rubs his feet. The disciples are waving, see you later, as they head into town to buy the food that they need. A woman walks slowly up to the well with a jar to draw water. It's the sixth hour, which is around noon, a strange time to draw water. Most women would do something like that in the morning. Maybe she wanted to avoid the other women. Maybe she wanted to be alone. But there's a strange man sitting there by the well. A Jewish man. And he does something unheard of. He asks her for a drink. Jews do not associate with Samaritans, especially Samaritan women. In fact, the phrase in our Bibles that's translated Jews do not associate with Samaritans literally means Jews do not use the dishes of Samaritans. How can this man ask to use her water jar? And not only does Jesus ask for a drink from her, he tells her he has water to give her, water that will last forever, water that will mean she's never thirsty again. What kind of person is this, she wonders. What can he mean? It seems like in these early chapters of John, Jesus keeps encountering people that don't quite understand what he means. In John chapter 3, Jesus has just encountered Nicodemus. And now, Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And these two characters could not be more different. Jesus encountered Nicodemus at night because Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a leader of the religious community, does not want to be seen going to Jesus in broad daylight. So Jesus encounters Nicodemus at night in the cover of darkness. But now Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at high noon, broad daylight, where Nicodemus did not want to be seen by others. So the woman also seems to be here at a time to avoid others. Nicodemus is an important 
man, both respected and respectable, and he's a Jewish man of high standing, and he does not understand what Jesus offers. And now Jesus is speaking with a Samaritan woman. Where Nicodemus was important, the Samaritan woman is low on the social totem pole. She's avoiding people right now. Nicodemus, an important Jewish man, and now this Samaritan woman, night and day difference. And yet what they have in common is that they don't understand what it is that Jesus is saying. Nicodemus' response, how can this be? How can this be when you say things like, you must be born again? And that's where the text leaves Nicodemus. The woman also has questions. But if there's a difference, it's in the fact that she presses into Jesus. She's not exactly sure what he means by this living water business, but she wants to know more. She presses into him, and she inquires of Jesus just what he means. The woman isn't quite sure what's going on with this strange man, but she's curious enough to find out. Give me this water, she asks, so I won't have to keep coming here. She's hopeful. Maybe this man has some good news for her. But Jesus' response cuts right to the heart of who she is, her sadness, her insecurities. He knows She has no husband. He knows what's happened in her past. This woman is amazed. She thinks, surely this must be a prophet. And with her recognition, sir, you must be a prophet, in her very next breath, she almost seems to change the subject by talking about the most deeply seated and oldest religious differences between Jews and Samaritans of where they worship. She recognizes Jesus as a prophet who's speaking to her here and now. And then she starts talking about Jews worshiping in the temple and in Jerusalem and Samaritans worshiping on a mountain. There's maybe two ways that we can, two ways that this has usually been understood why she has that strange combination of thoughts in one verse. One suggestion is that she's redirecting a little bit. What Jesus has said to her has cut her deep, it's hit her personal right in the center of her heart. And so it's almost like she changes the topic. It'd be like us saying, I can see that you're a prophet. So about March Madness, just a total redirect, different, different subject. But the reason I don't accept that is because she's not avoidant in any other way. She's pressing in on what Jesus is offering, unlike Nicodemus, who is kind of left with the profundities, and that seems to be the end. Rather, a different option to understand why the woman says what she does. Sir, I can see you are a prophet. You Jews worship this way. We worship this way. Is because she recognizes that Jesus has some credibility. She wants more from him. Maybe he can explain or weigh in on these great differences. I have to admit, sometimes when I'm on an airplane, I don't like to admit up front that I'm a pastor. I try to, like, I I don't deny it, and in fact, we usually get there, but I find the conversation to be a little bit more honest if people don't know I'm a pastor ahead of time. And usually when they find out that I am, they apologize for swearing a lot. (laughs) But it's that kind of conversation where all of a sudden she has realized that she is in the presence of a prophet. 
And so she wants to know more about, okay, if Jesus is a credible source, if he's a prophet, then Jesus, tell me more about these great differences between our people. It'd be like someone on an airplane saying, oh, you're a pastor. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does the church do this? What does the church do about that? But for this woman, it's not just about a credible source with information, about abstract answers. This is cutting subject matter right to her heart. It is deeply personal. This man knows me, the woman thinks. Perhaps she feels vulnerable. But she also feels understood. Jesus is making all of these amazing claims about living water that lasts forever, springs of water welling up inside a person that fill them with eternal life. It sounds so wonderful. And the woman wonders, can these promises really be for me? This man is Jewish. I'm a Samaritan. We're so different. Maybe these promises are too good to be true. So she questions Jesus. Out of a hope that's bubbling up inside of her and out of a fear that it's too wonderful for her. Could these promises really include me? And Jesus answers her wondering by saying, Woman, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus is setting aside the differences between them. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus said that someday it wouldn't matter if we worshipped on the mountain in Samaria or in the temple at Jerusalem, because all people would worship God in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth? The woman would have wondered, what does that even mean? What would it mean to worship in truth? The truth. This man knew the truth about the woman. Jesus knew about her previous marriages, knew she wasn't married to the man she was living with now. Somehow, this Jewish stranger knew about her life. He knew the truth about her. In this moment, the woman is invited to come honestly before God in worship. And to confront all those differences between Jews and Samaritans, there's a vision of worship that they both share. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 2, and I invite you, even as you hear these words, to, to listen for the ways in which it points out that these are all the descendants of Jacob being spoken about, which both Jews and Samaritans would claim to be descendants of Jacob both listening for where the temple is, where the mountain is, where does worship happen in the last days? In the last days, from Isaiah chapter 2, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and the nations, all nations, will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, 
Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In that text, all of the descendants of Jacob are called together. And their arguments about which temple, which mountain, who's got it right, gets settled simply by God calling all people together. There's temple and mountain both named. And this is the dispute that the, that the Jews and Samaritans can't settle on their own. But the vision is of people called together, not only all nations, but all people created in the image of God. All unhappy divisions cease. People are reconciled. Global conflicts come to peaceful resolution. And all people come to worship God together as one. And God settles their disputes once and for all. Can you imagine all disputes being settled permanently? No more bickering, no more backstabbing. There is peace, there is union, there is reconciliation. Not just between Jews and Samaritans, but between Jew and Gentile, between all people created in God's image, being called into God's presence to worship together in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit and in truth means that we will worship together. We won't be separated from one another or alone. We don't know much about the circumstances of this woman's life. We don't know why she had five different husbands and what led her to the situation she's in now. Maybe she was divorced, maybe widowed. Regardless of the circumstance, she had certainly faced hardship in her life. She knew loss. She knew loneliness. That's why she'd come to the well to avoid the other women. Perhaps she felt alienated, friendless, alone. Jesus' statement includes her as one of the true worshipers who will worship God with all God's people in spirit and in truth. This is good news. And it's good news that we all are in need of, not just Jews and Samaritans, but all of us. We all have areas of our lives where we're exhausted, exasperated, maybe frustrated or simply impatient. Maybe it's the area of our life where we don't know what to do next. We're tired and weary. Just as our bodies grow thirsty on a long walk in the hot sun, our souls grow thirsty on the long walk in this hard life. When we face trials, when we face circumstances that we don't know what to do, we grow thirsty. And we need living water. We need water that will cleanse, purify, refresh, and sustain us. That description of water comes right out of our baptism liturgy, where we promise to support all the members of this church along the way, offering a cup of cold water, offering encouragement to those who are downtrodden on the path. It's what we promise when we pledge our support to Tammy and Reuben today. 
when we join as members, we say, we will lead you to streams of living water. And so ask yourself in this season of Lent, where in your life do you have the least amount of satisfaction? And where in your life do you have the deepest longing? Wherever you sense that, that's probably where you're getting a little bit close. You're on to identifying the parts of your life that are thirsty. Parts of your life that need living water. Jesus' living water in spirit and in truth isn't just some quick fix or a path for us to get our own way, but worshiping in spirit and in truth, drinking of the water that is the living water of life, will bring water to parched places in our souls. And that water comes to us on God's terms, not on our terms. A spring of living water wells up inside the woman's soul. She feels a hope and an excitement that compels her to take action. The living water inside her cannot be contained. It bubbles over as she drops her water bucket and goes back into town to tell everyone about this man that she's met. Could this man be the Christ, the Messiah? In different places in the gospel, Jesus will do a miracle and then tell people not to say anything about it. And yet here in John 4, Jesus gives the Samaritan woman at the well a clear picture of divine revelation. I who speak to you am he, he says to her. This is divine revelation of who Jesus truly is. And it's Jesus' truth in revelation that is an invitation for the woman and for the entire village that she goes back to, to come to Jesus, to worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, the time is coming and has now come when true believers will worship in spirit and in truth. What does that look like for us? What does it mean for us, North Holland, to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? Worshiping in spirit and in truth means worshiping Jesus, who reveals himself in saying, I who speak to you am he. Worshiping in spirit and in truth means responding to God's call to live in sincerity of thought, word, and deed. Worshiping in spirit and in truth means bringing all of who we are to all of who God is. Worshiping in spirit and in truth means we get honest about who we are when we come into the presence of the Lord. We are sinners, redeemed by God's grace. Worshiping in spirit and in truth means it's not about the congregation you attend or the location you worship or the denomination you're even a part of. It is a reminder that we are one in Christ Jesus, reconciled with all God's people, reconciled with our neighbors. Worshiping in spirit and in truth means that the living water lives in us. It sustains us and it bubbles up out of us to transform the world around us. Come, Come, people people of of God. God. Let Let us us worship worship in in spirit and and in truth. Amen. Will you pray with me? God of love and mercy, bless us on our Lenten journey as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. By your light, call us to faithful following. By your word, call us to attentive listening. By your cross, Call us to sacrificial obedience. And by your Holy Spirit, provide for us the living water that we are in need of, that we can be called to repentance, 
joy, and service, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.